time to open it. If you don't have one, it will be on the screen. But if you do, open it now to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, and we will read verses 14 through 16. And then we will go to a passage in Romans as we continue a series, brief series, on gospel renewal or sort of gospel recalibration to pick up on Rick's theme where we go back and uh, find out why the good news isn't good news to us anymore. Sometimes we sort of lose our way and I think it's extremely important and the theme of today's message is there is no alternative to the gospel but works righteousness. Both religion that is a churchy person, or irreligion, I couldn't care less for the church, the Bible, God, or anything else, are all striving to achieve a righteousness through their own efforts. So there is no difference. And by the time we leave, I hope you're convinced of that more than you were before you got here. To talk about the problem of self-justification we're also blind to it. So I pray the Lord will open our eyes so we can see the reality in our own experience. You don't need to hear this sermon for someone else. You need to hear this sermon for you. Hear now the word of the Lord. But when I saw that their conduct, well, yeah, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, if you live like a Jew, uh, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Then turn to the book of Romans chapter 4. I know some people are saying, why are you talking about Romans? Aren't you going to preach through Romans? Well, we don't just have to look at it once. Uh, there's a lot here. Notice Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is God's word. Let us pray. Uh, dear Father, we pray today that the Holy Spirit, the seeker and searcher of our hearts, will spotlight not only the glory of Christ but also the depth and desperation of our need. And we count on you to do that because of the promises you have made to us. 
So I pray that you will empower and enable the one who speaks as well as the ones who hear so that Christ may be all in all. And this we pray in his name. Amen. Never let it be said that Paul Tripp ever said anything halfway. And if you've ever read much of Paul Tripp, he goes for the juggler most of the time. He doesn't, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't dance around issues. And this is what I want you to listen to him uh, for today. Why do any of us get upset or tense when we're confronted? Why do any of us activate our inner lawyer and rise to our own defense? Why do any of us turn the tables and remind the other person that we are not the only sinner in the room? Why do we argue about the facts or dispute the other person's interpretation? We do all of these things because we are convinced in our hearts that we are more righteous than how we are being portrayed in the moment of confrontation. Proud people don't welcome loving, warning, rebuke, confrontation, question, criticism, or accountability because they don't feel the need for it. And when they do fail, they are very good at erecting plausible reasons for what they said or did given the stress of the situation or the relationship in which it was done. Now, I don't know about you, but if my family, the Posies, ever had a crest, the motto under our crest would be, it is not my fault. <laughs> it is not my fault. And the reason we're hardwired that way is because of creation and the fall. We always want to draw a line and place ourselves on the good side of the line and everybody who disagrees with us on the bad side of the line. And Adam and Eve did that by their partaking of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they placed themselves on the good side of the line and ultimately placed each other and God himself on the evil side of the line. So everybody who tries by their own accomplishments, achievements, works, whatever term you want to use, tries to achieve a righteousness on their own, ends up scapegoating people to maintain that righteousness. We have to tear others down to feel like we're righteous. Now, I'm saying we, because I want you to keep in mind during this whole message that we includes me. I'm probably more convicted than anybody will be the rest of the day about this stuff because I've lived with it all week. And I've thought about it and I've prayed through it. First, we must understand that Jesus condemned self-justification through moral performance with greater vigor than almost anything else he said. His confrontation with the righteousness of the Pharisees, who he said our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or anybody else in the New Testament era. Uh, Jesus' harshest words, his most direct, piercing condemnation came to people who thought they were righteous in themselves. We have this dynamic in our being. We are hardwired to justify ourselves. We cannot stop it. It consumes us. 
Every single person, whether you go to church or you hate the church, or you're involved in another religion altogether, or you think you transcend this whole argument, you are hungry for one thing. You want to be good and you want to be right. Everybody wants that. And it doesn't matter which way we do it. You see, there are only two religions in the world, ultimately. Those that are based upon what I do, works righteousness, are those that are based upon me looking outside of myself and trusting in Christ alone who delivers me from my sin, who dies and takes the penalty of my covenant breaking and who gives me freely, clothes me with his obedience. Those are the only two religions. And you're either in one or the other. You're either into works righteousness or you're into the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your life and your soul. And there is no middle ground. Self-justification is one of the major practices that undermines our ability to welcome or receive grace. Self-justification means that I try to consider myself to become acceptable to God, uh, or put another way, have a right relationship with God based on my doing, based on my goodness, based on my achievements. To make myself more acceptable to God, myself, and others, and my place in the world, self-justification is antithetical to the experience of grace. Grace means that God makes me and declares me to be acceptable uh, in spite of my utter unacceptability. Now, if you look at the New Testament and you look at Jesus, probably the most overt way he attacked self-justification was the picture of, of the uh, failure of both religion and irreligion in the parable of the two sons in Luke. Now, what you will understand if you read the parable of the prodigal son, but it's also the parable of the elder brother, and it's also the parable of the waiting father and the loving father. Both sons were totally alienated from their father. The one who stayed home, the good son. The one who obeyed his father, the good son. The one who practiced righteousness, the good son, was in the end just as alienated from the father as the younger son who went to his father, demanded his inheritance, which would have been one-third of everything he had. And so the son leaves. He says, I want, I want to get, out of, get away from your uh, oversight, and I want to go swing, and I want to go party. Give me what's mine now, and I will leave, which is incredibly insulting. To his father and we know what he did he ran and he spent all of his thing trying to find righteousness that's what he's looking for and he doesn't find it and he ends up in ruin and he comes to himself and he decides to run home but as he starts coming home he begins to have this dialogue in his mind of saying how can I get back into my father's good graces I know I'll go and plead with him to make me a servant like a slave and I'll work for you because I know I've humiliated you I know I've embarrassed you I know I have done horrible horrible things and the guilt is swallowing me up but as the sun appears on the horizon, the waiting father runs to that son and he embraces him and the son spills out his half-baked repentance 
which wouldn't even measure up to a good definition of repentance. The only thing good about it was he came to himself and realized he was wrong. Father doesn't even listen to him. He covers him in kisses. Why? Because the Father represents our Father in heaven who has mercy and grace for repentant sinners. And so he decides, you know, to give him a robe, to kill the fatted calf, to have a feast, to have a festival. He puts shoes on his feet. And guess what? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but who pays for this party? Well, you say the father does. Uh-uh. The two-thirds of the inheritance belong to whom? The elder brother. And he's sitting there thinking, this is not right. This is so wrong. And he pouts, and he refuses to enter uh, the party. And the father goes to him, tries to woo him and win him back, but he refuses to come. And so while the elder brother, who is pursuing righteousness through being good, ends up outside the party, ends up alienated from the father. He was not the good son. There are no good sons. There are no good people. Paul said it this way. There's no one righteous. There's no one good. No, in case you're sitting there going, wait a minute. No, not what? One. No, not one. And so self-justification is rooted in trying to develop our goodness and our righteousness. And so the elder brother represents the religious leaders. He never disobeys any of the father's laws. As a result, he tries to control his father and exclude his brother. And in the end, he's the one that misses the feast of salvation rather than his profligate brother. There could be no more powerful warning. The elder brother is not lost despite his obedience to the father, but because of his obedience to his father and his dependence upon it. And Jesus shows us that the problem of self-justification, the belief that we can win God's favor through our virtue, in Luther's terminology, religion is just another form of works righteousness which leads to profound instability. We are never sure of our worthiness. We always need to be superior and feel superior to others who do not conform in order to bolster our radical insecurity. Following Jesus, we must agree with our critics about the danger of religion, uh, but show that they are wrong about the solution to it. Secular people see religion as a body of fixed doctrine and ethics that one must adhere to in order to acquire rights of blessing in heaven. They see how often religion leads to self-righteousness, exclusion and oppression. Modern culture, however, wrongly identifies fixed doctrine, that is, absolute truth. The religious way of being our own Savior leads us to keep God's law, while the irreligious way of being our own Savior leads us to break His law. But everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. Now, you may feel... I'm not tracking with you, Pastor. What are you talking about? I, I don't see that. Well, let me talk to you about some of our secular friends who've written on the subject. There was one named Ernest Becker, and Ernest Becker was both a psychologist 
and a uh, cultural anthropology guy. He's really bright. And here's what he said about human nature. He says this, we must desperately justify ourselves as an object of primary value in the universe. We must stand out. We must be a hero, make the biggest possible contribution to world and life, show that we count more than anything or anyone else. This guy's not a Christian. He's not a Christian at all, but he sees it. See, that's the wonderful thing about psychology. The good thing about psychology is description. Boy, they can nail you. Now, prescription, sometimes I differ. All right. But he shows it's still a mythical hero system. This is, again, Becker, in which people serve in order to earn a feeling of primary value, of cosmic specialness, of ultimate usefulness to creation, of unshakable meaning. They earn this feeling by carving out a place in nature, by building an edifice that reflects human value. And so Becker says, driven by the fear of death, we all want to be heroes, and we all want to get into the heroic. There's another way that we see it in our culture, and it's called virtue signaling. How many of you are aware of virtue signaling? Virtue signaling, according to the Oxford Dictionary, English Dictionary, is the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. It has become a staple of social media, whether by expression or indignation when catching someone else's lapse in sensitivity or by an overt reference to one's own good works. And so we live in a culture that virtue signals. Uh, and it is a phenomenon that could well be called self-justification. People do it all the time. It's surely telling that in a culture that supposedly cares nothing for moral morality, that is totally relativistic, that rejects absolutes, that is amoral or flagrantly immoral, is actually full of moral indignation and righteous criticism and virtue signals. Now, I'll tell you what's happened with people quite a bit. And this is what's happened with people. Since they've dismissed God from their lives and they are secular, they cannot get rid of this obsessive, compulsive desire to be righteous. They want it. And they think, you know, th that the church, we're just the church lady on Saturday Night Live. We're just judgmental. We think we're better. We're snobs. We look down our nose. Well, we got a lot of competition, don't we? Do you read social media? Are you aware of social media? I read that, uh, this week an article, and the author is a guy named Sutton. That's not nearly as important as what he says. He says this, Faithfulness in the age of social media will require Christians to understand why we are drawn to these spaces, what the longing behind, by the way, let me say I have a Facebook account, so don't think, I don't know, and don't think I maybe may have done some of this stuff, but just listen. We have a longing 
behind our desire to cultivate our self-presentation online, to recognize the futility in our attempts to find affirmation and satisfaction online, and to find in the gospel freedom from the snare of self-justification. It is encouraging to see that others are taking this line of thought further. When our basic identity, or what you might call your life's confidence, is rooted in yourself, our hearts are essentially unstable and insecure. We will do anything to fortify our self-image, including tearing down the public image of and the image of God in other people. That's why the self-righteous heart is always condemning. It's never satisfied with being right. It always needs to prove that others are wrong. And some of the biggest temptations occur when activists take to the stage. But self-righteousness, virtue signaling, and the desire for self-justification go well beyond the politically minded among us. Facebook has made it easy for all of us, or I could say Instagram, or I could say Twitter, to seek online affirmation in all sorts of ways. I'm not judging your motives. I don't know why you do it. But just listen. A recent essay from Trevor Sutton, inclined to boast, social media and self-justification, uh, offers us some deep theological reflection uh, through the lenses of conservative Lutheran theology. He argues that the like button on Facebook is emblematic of our modern pursuit of self-justification. What does the modern pursuit of self-justification look like? It differs from the manifestations of self-justification in previous generations. The classic doctrine of justification by faith alone, championed by Luther and the Reformers, was articulated in a society filled with people who felt the dread of impending death. The vertical dimension of justification by faith provided an answer to people who lacked assurance regarding their future, specifically on what basis an individual could possibly hope to stand before a holy, sovereign God. In contrast, our society today has pushed death to the side. Without the dread of death, the vertical dimension of justification has been diminished into a horizontal one. Death is not a daily fear for most people in modern industrialized nations. The vast majority of people in developed nations begin each week assuming that they will survive to see the weekend. The deferment of death has diminished the urgency of the vertical realm and produced a greater regard for the horizontal realm. Contemporary culture says there is plenty of life standing between now and my eventual death and being in a right relationship with the world right now is far more pressing than being in a right relationship with God. So, there's a craving, as I've said many times, for justification still among us. But this desire to be seen in right relationship has moved more to the horizontal level, not vertical, not between you and God, but between you and others. People are concerned more about being affirmed by others than about receiving the affirmation of God. Self-justification in the late Middle Ages was about producing good works that one might offer God in order to be deemed before his face as a righteous, good person. Self-justification in our modern age is about producing good works that one might offer to oneself 
or the world in order to be deemed by your peers as righteous. The fear of judgment and death has been removed from our present cultural moment. In an age when people fear the judgment of their peers far more than the judgment of God, what's the worst possible thing that can happen to you? Being canceled. Is it not? Don't people dread that? Don't they struggle with that? What I'm trying to communicate to you is this is what self-justification looks like. This is how people do it. And it, it's constant. It's pervasive. Now, uh, in an age when people fear the judgment of their peers far more than the judgment of God, we have become increasingly petulant, critical, even cruel, and it's proving hard to take. Our contemporaries are now primarily trying to win the favor of God, uh, not trying to win the favor of God. They're trying to win the favor of one another, and the judgment they fear is not the last judgment, but the humiliating comments on social media being canceled. When the craving for justification morphs from the vertical to the horizontal, we do not find peace but only anxiety and stress. Last year, I was intrigued by how many TV personalities on New Year's Eve wished everyone a judgment-free year. Why this fear, fear of judgment is supposedly uh, in a tolerant society. The longing to receive affirmation and the desire to escape judgment is at the heart of just self-justification. Sutton thinks our social media habits confirm and enhance those desires. Collecting likes and favorites has become a primary way for people to confirm their righteousness. New media design technologies are at the forefront of individual user experiences, enabling and expediting the human pursuit of self-justification. Luther described the human penchant for sin as incessantly building a case for our own righteous while rejoicing in the deficiencies of others, but the carnal, fleshly nature of man violently rebels, for it greatly delights in punishment, in boasting of its own righteousness, and in its neighbor's shame, and the embarrassment at his own unrighteousness. Therefore, it pleads its own case. It rejoices that this is better than its neighbors they scapegoat. They always go together. Two men standing in the temple, one who thanks God he's not like this tax collector. He's a Pharisee. But in the end, he justifies himself and he looks down on others to keep his self-justification fresh and fed. Sutton sees social media and the like button on Facebook in particular as emblematic of the human propensity to plead for our own righteousness. And I could go on and on, and I can see I'm losing a couple of you. But uh, maybe you don't have Facebook, huh? And you think you escape. No, you don't. You don't. Now, if this is our problem, if because... We were created in the image and likeness of God. And we entered into a covenant of works relationship with Adam and Eve did in our stead, in the garden. And because they failed, 
we find ourselves often placing ourselves again under a covenant of works arrangement with whatever we consider to be our affirmation. We want to be affirmed. We long to be accepted. We long to be uh, thought of as good and competent and wonderful people by people whom we revere and adore. And so Hollywood, this is basically the heartbeat of Hollywood. Everybody in Hollywood is so desperately. I remember one time I met an actor some of you will know who he is. <laughs> and uh, we were talking. And what I felt the whole time I was with him was this. Love me. Love me. Please love me. Please adore me. Please make me feel as big as I think I am. And I have to tell you, that was not much fun. It wasn't any fun at all to be around this guy because he was just sucking the life out of you trying to get affirmation. But we are chronic self-justifiers. And when it comes to having the gospel have an effect upon your life, what do we do about it? How do we overcome it? I don't think we ever totally overcome it, but we can at least spot it and by the way, if you spot it, you got it in other people. That is the truth. Well, when the gospel is really understood, it manifests itself in three very significant ways. And this is the third point in the sermon. The gospel enables us to repent of our righteousness. You know, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, or yeah, parades all of his resume and his record before people, if anybody's going to boast anything, look at me, this is what I've got. But he ends up considering that as scubula, which literally means feces. It does. Nobody wants to say that, but that's what Paul said. He says, not only was my self-righteousness wrong, but it stood in the way of ever turning to Christ and receiving his. The reason why Jesus means nothing to so many of us is because we're counting on our own righteousness. We're developing our own righteousness. While most people are willing to admit and repent of their sins, the Christian is a person who also repents of his or her righteousnesses. The Christian sees that his or her righteous acts are not only insufficient to make them right with God, but often sinful themselves. They were performed in order to save himself or herself apart from Christ. The Christian rests solely on the finished work of Christ plus nothing for salvation. The Christian understands that it is our good works as much as our sin which comes between God and ourselves. Good old John Gerstner who's with the Lord now, and he never spared going for the jugular either. He said, for some of you, it's not so much your sins that are keeping you from Christ. It is your damnable good works. It is your high estimation and your opinion of yourself that's keeping you. You don't want to need Jesus. That's why in Romans 10, when Paul talks about uh, right, the end of the law, righteousness, and he, he relates to righteousness in chapter 10, that's why he says we have to get rid of our own righteousness and submit to his. 
There's a submission. What is submission? Laying down, placing myself under his righteousness. Here's what uh, George Whitfield said. George Whitfield is that great evangelist who was a rock star in his day who could make the women swoon simply by saying Mesopotamia. I don't know how he did it. I've never heard him on tape. We didn't have it. Here's what he said. When a soul first gets the sight of God, it says, I will reform. I will be mighty good. So like Adam and Eve in the garden, the soul tries to patch up a righteousness of its own to hide a nakedness it feels before God. But when a soul gets a full view of God, it realizes that it never has and never will have, uh, never has and never will love God as he deserves to be loved with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and even the best deeds defile and are full of self-centeredness so that God can condemn you for the best prayer you've ever sent up, that your repentance needs to be repented of, that all of your righteousness is a filthy rag, and that God must send them and you away if you bring them to him in order to recommend them to his favor. Therefore, only before the grace of God, says Whitfield, only a sight of God's full holiness can bring you out of your self-righteousness, which is always the last idol taken away out of your heart. Until you see it, for what it is, you will not trust in Christ, and you may turn to him for help. You may make him your example, but you will not trust him as your Savior until you have repented of your righteousness. Have you done that? Are you a person who's pretty impressed with your own record? Are you a person who says to yourself, you know, I'm a good person. I try to do the right thing. I try to live for Christ no, you're not. You're just not. This is what Leslie Newbigin says. <laughs> he says, the Christian is one who has forever given up the hope of being able to think of himself as a good man. He is forever a sinner for whom the Son of God had to die because by no other means could he be forgiven. In a sense, we can say that he has given up the effort to be good. That is no longer his aim. He is seeking to do one thing and one thing only, to pay back some of the unpayable debt of gratitude to Christ who loved him as a sinner and gave himself for him. And in this new and self-forgetting quest, he finds that that, when he sought it directly, was forever bound to elude him, that is, the good life. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone. In righteousness. Complete. That's why so many of us are just stressed out. We can't relax. We can't relax. We can't rest. We can't find peace. It's because we're counting on our own righteousness. The second thing that the gospel does is it enables us to admit our wickedness. Now, some pastors now, I have noticed, no longer speak of wickedness or vile sinfulness. They say of our brokenness, like it ain't my fault. Somebody broke me, you see. Well, we are broken. But we're broken by our own doing <laughs> and our own undoing. 
Now, we may be victims, that's sure. But the point here is, is that the gospel gives me the cur- Once I know the one who matters most in all of eternity welcomes me into his presence, calls me his son, rejoices over me with singing, delights in me, rejoices over me, longs to spend time with me. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need to, but he wants to. And once I understand that, I'm able to stand before him without pleading any righteousness. I'm able to stand before him and allow him to show me my need for Jesus. You get the psychological courage through justification by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. You get the courage because you know you're loved and you know you'll never not be loved. Nothing can ever separate you from that. And once you get that, you have the courage to be an authentic, deeply real, genuine person. You don't put on airs. One of my pet peeves, and I've probably done this before, is when uh, preachers get up and they get into a preacher voice. You know what I mean? Our Father in heaven. And speak King James, King Jimmy Ease. Now, see how self-justifying I am? I just did it. I never cared for that because I thought it was fake. But there are ways I fake too. But, but, but the point is the gospel gives you the freedom and the courage to see that you ain't all that. That things are your fault. That you're wet, ready and willing to take responsibility where you have failed. That the idea of someone confronting you or holding you accountable doesn't just tick you off and you want to go kick the side of their car and put some dents in it. No. You know. You've already agreed with God about it. Let the fellow sinner tell you. And the third thing that the gospel enables us to, to do that is a remedy is it ends our attempts at self-salvation, our strategies. Prior to embracing the gospel, people live without depending upon God as if they don't need him. This can be done in a number of ways. Moral and religious people seek to be their own savior through religious. That's religious pride. I'm more moral and spiritual than other people, so God owes me. That's why Christians have a hard time with suffering. Uh, By the way, that's Job's whole problem. The big problem of Job that it takes 42 chapters to get through, and you're sitting here wondering when is he going to quit, takes 42 chapters to get through to show him that his problem is self-righteousness. He doesn't think he deserves what happens to him. If you truly see yourself, you realize you don't deserve anything but eternal wrath and judgment and abandonment. And once you see the good news of the gospel frees you to see that, then you stop feeling entitled. There's a real sense of entitlement in arrogance and pride. Christians are those who've adopted a whole new way of approaching God. They say they've had both a religious and an irreligious phase in their lives. They have come to see the entire reason for both the religion and irreligion is essentially the same and wrong. Christians come to see both their sin and their best deeds have been ways of avoiding Jesus. 
as Savior. Flannery O'Connor writes about that quite a bit in her writings. They come to see that Christianity is not fundamentally an invitation to get more religious. A Christian comes to say, though I've failed to obey the moral law, the deeper problem was why was I trying to obey it? Even my efforts to obey it has just been a way of seeking to be my own Savior and not having to depend upon Jesus and submit to him. So where are you? Where are you? That's what God said to Adam. After he was naked, he realized he was naked. been naked the whole time. But when he sinned, he ran away from God. He avoided God. He avoided uh, an encounter with him. And God comes to him with a gracious question, where are you? Are you trying to cover yourself with fig leaves? That's works righteousness. When God takes an animal, kills the animal, sheds blood, provides animal skins to cover up their nakedness, it's a picture of what Jesus came to do for us. That's why the gospel is the best good news you will ever hear. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you so much for the exposure that we've all experienced today on ways in which we try our best to justify ourselves. Some of us more before our peers, some of us more before God, but either way it's the same thing. Works righteousness is either who we are or Christ righteousness. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who've been liberated. We have been freed, and we've been enslaved now to a gracious master who loved us and gave him so for us. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.